I really like that hymn, that lovely source of true delight that we sang. I just was so struck by that text the first time I discovered it in an old old hymnal that I had. And um, I thought, particularly tonight, as I, verse 6, Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love, but the full glories of thy face are only known above. I, I love the way this hymn celebrates the reality and the longing for spiritual experience now. It's not enough just to know that the Lord is good and true. Uh, Anne Steele in this text is crying out that the Lord would open her eyes to see more of the truth of the Lord's beauty and that it would affect her. And yet she knows that as, as much as she will taste in this life what she longs for, still will be only be fully satisfied in heaven to come. And the reason I like that is because so often, so often you hear Christianity explained as being all about the hope of heaven. But the truth is, the Bible promises a lot of spiritual experience in the here and now. Christianity is not about trying to make yourself dead to this good creation that God has made and to killing all your desires uh, in some kind of stoic Buddhist sort of way. That's not what Christianity is about. And yet, you know, you come to a, to a text like ours tonight where it says, do not covet. And you may think, well, the best way to obey that command, do not covet, is to quit wanting anything at all. In actuality, I hope that we'll see tonight, that the longing for God and his kingdom is the longing that puts all other longings in their place but it's not the longing that puts to death all other longings. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said one time that our problem is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. We're too easily satisfied. And as the kingdom of God begins to grip our soul and fill our hearts, it should give us a more intense ache for the reality of that kingdom to come here, to this world. And if we find that happening, then we'll be in touch with God himself. Because in Romans 8, Paul says that the Holy Spirit himself is groaning for that. And that the whole creation is groaning. And that we too are and should be groaning. But let's look back at Exodus chapter 21st. As we look tonight at the very last of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. I'm actually going to read a few verses past um, this last commandment because I think it's, it's interesting where the passage goes next. But pick up at verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. 
Lord, even as we come to this text, it's good to be reminded that the fear of God is important and desirable. That the fear of God, as, as one commentator says, is the fear that puts all other fears in their place. And Lord, we long to be people who would honor you because everything that we think about, everything we fear, everything we hope for is connected to you and your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us that which is pleasing to you for your name's sake and for your glory and because of Jesus. Because, Lord, this is what he died for. And so we ask you to do this in his name. Amen. What is the sin of coveting all about? The sin of coveting. At the very heart, it's about heart longings. And I, and I mentioned this in the introduction. You know, all of the Ten Commandments, while we've talked about them, and Jesus certainly leads us in interpreting this way in the Sermon on the Mount, all of the Ten Commandments are, not, are about internal issues as well as external issues. They're not just about external behavior. But if you didn't get that point as you went through these first nine commandments, when you get to the tenth one, it's, it's you know, uh, undoubtable. The, the, the tenth commandment is the one that really no kind of legal system or no country has been really able to figure out how to legislate. But God himself does command us not just to obey externally, but from the heart. God says, I am Lord over your longings and your desires. That's pretty bold. That's pretty bold. I am Lord over your longings and your desires. And you are not to have some desires that may seem to come natural to you. That's interesting. seems very, again, you know, you can't go through these Ten Commandments without just being struck by how often God is so very undemocratic and so very un-American. The idea that you would not have the right to do with your longings and desires what you want to do seems just so ridiculous that it's not even worth considering. Yet the reality is, God says, I made you, and I made you not so you could just sort of, you know, sort of color in between the lines and, and sort of walk this, this right path externally. I made you so that I could have your heart. The Bible calls God a jealous God, and it means that as a good thing. That God is not content with just external obedience. He wants your heart. And he becomes enraged even when you give it to another. But who would want to be married to somebody who didn't care when you gave your heart to somebody else? We may look at that and say, well, you know, gosh, who would, who would want a God who gets mad at people, you know, for what they, what they long for in their heart? And the fact is, when you're married someday, I hope you'll understand that, that it's, it's a really big deal who you give your heart to. And it wouldn't be love if God didn't care. So he comes and he says, look, you can't covet this and you can't covet that. And he says it for two reasons, I think. One, he says it because it reflects, it reflects an attitude, an attitude uh, about God that is, God, I know better than you. You, you, have, you have screwed up in the distribution of your gifts. And I know what would make it better. And it also reflects a breakdown in love for our neighbor. Notice, it's not you shouldn't just covet this and covet that. It's you shouldn't covet your neighbor's this and your neighbor's that. 
As we've been going through these Ten Commandments, I've, I've talked about how all of these commandments are about loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor. And so it is with this one as well. I remember, um, I remember what a revolutionary idea it was to me in college. Um, I, I remember you know, deciding that I actually got thrown into the point where I had to teach this Bible study, and I realized I didn't really know very much about anything at all. And so I decided I'd better go get some books and learn about things. And I, I started really enjoying reading books, and so I started looking for more books. And I finally found this little used bookstore in an Episcopal church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and just over the river from Boston and where, where I was in school. And I remember just, I would just browse through this little used bookstore and not really having any idea about what was a good book and what was a bad book. And I bought some really crazy books, and I bought some books that were really helpful. But I remember when I found this book called The Christian Mind by Harry Blumiers who was a student of C.S. Lewis's. I didn't know this at the time. I just thought, that sounds like an interesting thing. I'm reading books. I'm trying to learn things. So The Christian Mind sounds like a good book to read. Um, it was the first edition of the book, so it didn't really have all like the commendations from various people that it would have later in later editions because I came to find later it was a very important book in sort of developing this whole idea of what's called a biblical world and life view. But for me, the very last chapter of that book called The Sacramental Cast was just mind-blowing. Because here, Harry Pamiris was saying that if we try to articulate a Christianity that can't do justice to romantic love and to our love of a good sunset and the way music moves us and stirs us, then we have failed to articulate biblical Christianity. And I said, wow. You know, here I am getting ready to graduate with a degree in music production and engineering. I, I really enjoy music, but I, I'm finding the more I grow as a Christian, the more I'm feeling bad about enjoying things of the creation that God has made shouldn't be that way. And yet too often, Christianity is, I think, taught and modeled as, as really about, about not enjoying this world, even to, to the point where in some circles you would get the impression that the more miserable you are, the more holy you are. And so we come to this commandment, do not covet, and I want us to understand, first and foremost, this command is saying that your longings and desires matter. It doesn't say, do not long for things. It says, don't covet things that the Lord has given to somebody else. But again, I think a lot of times Christianity gets taught as don't long for anything. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is not stoicism. Stoicism is the idea that the only way you can persevere through this broken world is to kill all of your hopes and desires. It takes you know, the, the form of cynicism in a lot of places today. But that's not what Christianity is about. Coveting, though, is really, is really sort of a misappropriation of these longings because it wants to do justice to the longings without submitting to God's goodness and God's providence. It's a very helpful book I recommend all the time called Bold Love by a man named Dan Allender. And he has a great little section in there where he talks about the way anger and lust have harmed us. And in that little section, he has some great things to say about what lust really is. And it's another way of talking about coveting. Because lust, while we think of it mostly in, in this day and age in terms of sexual longings, it really in the Bible is a bigger topic than that. You can lust after all kinds of things. It's sort of this inordinate desire that I have to have this thing or I'll die. I have to possess this thing. 
And coveting, he says, it's really interesting. He says that what is going on in coveting is a strategy to try to get back to the garden. You remember, Adam and Eve, we were made to be in a garden, not just so we could just sort of sit around, but so that we could enjoy rich relational fellowship with God. The kind of fellowship that we sang about, that this beauty would just fill our soul. The Bible talks about how God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And it tries to just get us to, to begin to try to get our hearts around this idea that you were made not just to keep the rules, but to be in a loving relationship with God that would really fulfill your longings, your heart longings. And yet, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, turned away from him and his ways, refused to submit to his law and to his word, they were kicked out of the garden. And, you know, here's the thing. What Allender says is fascinating. He says that anger, anger is what happens whenever somebody blocks our way back into what we think is the garden. Where we think we're going to get that taste, that experience that we were made for, that rich heart connection. If somebody blocks that, we get angry. But lust, coveting and lust, are the attempt to get back to the garden. Listen to how he puts it. He says, lust is the effort to possess another in order to steal enough passion to be lifted out of our current struggles into a world that feels, for an instant, like the Garden of Eden. Let me say that again. Lust is the effort to possess another in order to steal enough passion to be lifted out of our current struggles into a world that feels, for an instant, like the Garden of Eden. Evil, Eden sorry. If anger is the desire to make someone pay for blocking our return to the garden, then lust is our effort to push our way back into the garden. Even Crosby, Stills, and Nash knew this, right? Got to get back to the garden. Of course, what the Bible means by that is a whole lot deeper and richer than what they meant. But listen, all lustful fantasies, and I'm not just talking about sexual fantasies, I'm talking about all lustful fantasies have to be seen in this light. Listen to what Allender says about them. He says, fantasies are private magic carpets that serve to deliver the soul from boredom, anxiety, anger, loneliness, and rage to a quote-unquote better world that offers momentary relief and satisfaction. They are quite literally escapes from reality, coveting, Covening is really believing this lie that if you had X, then your life would be better. And, of course, you're the one who gets to define what better is. And so in coveting, not only do you long for certain things, but in coveting, at the heart of coveting, is a vision, a vision of what you think the ideal kingdom would be if you were in charge. And coveting your neighbor's wife or his manservant, or maidservant, or his ox, or his house, or all those things, are really a means to the end. But before you covet any of those things, you first believe that I need a different life, and I know better than God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. And I don't care who it hurts. I don't care who God has given this thing to. I need it, and I have a right to it. That's what's going on in coveting. Coveting is a refusal to embrace God's loving providence. Providence is the way he cares and controls his world. It's a refusal to embrace that, and it springs always from a heart that doesn't think God is good enough or wise enough 
to give us what we really need. And so you find, like all these commandments, at their heart, at their heart, we first forget who God really is. That's why we covet. We think that he's not good or he's not wise. See, we covet both a vision of the ideal life and the things we think will bring it to us. But every one of us has a vision of what we think would make our life better. And what God wants to say is, I challenge not only your vision of what a better life would be, but I challenge what you think you need to get there. It's not just enough to say, quit lusting after all these things, if you also don't have your heart captured by God's kingdom rather than the kingdom that you idealize in your own head. It's really important. Otherwise, you're just treating the symptoms. The Bible, you see, never just sort of offers us a negative path towards holiness or becoming more like Christ. It always offers a positive and a negative. While we are not to covet, we are also to fill our hearts and our longings with the kingdom vision. As Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, even legitimate things, like where you're going to live and what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat, all of these things will be added to you. But it completely changes things when you seek first the kingdom of God. But it's not just, well, you know, seek. It's a strong word. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's almost a strong word like covet. The way you deal with coveting is not just to try to quit wanting things. Again, it's, it's, it's longing for God's kingdom in such a way that it puts all other longings in their place. See, the reason coveting is so hard to resist is that you were made for a better life than you're living right now. And it's not enough to try to tell your heart, heart, be content in the here and now. That's, that's, not, that's not all the Bible has to say about your longings. The Bible says at one point, yes, be content. Paul says in Philippians, I've learned the secret of being content. But he also says over in Romans chapter 8 that the believer, the believer is one who aches, who groans for the full consummation of what God made us for, what he describes as the glorious liberty of the sons, of the children of God. Are you experiencing the glorious liberty of the children of God? See, in, in one sense, all the things that you think you're longing for are really that. They're really that. They really are this glorious liberty to know and to be known that the Lord promises us. And we get little hints and little tastes of it now. But we were made for so much more. So you can't just sort of shut off your heart to longings. I've tried. Not only do I have God's word uh, is, uh, on this, I have my own experience. You can't just shut off your longings. It won't work. So what are we going to do? Well, what you need to understand, and what I need to remember as well, is that coveting is always connected to glory and worship and a kingdom vision. The problem is, we think we know what the kingdom should look like. We think we know what the kingdom should look like. We long for our kingdom to be established, and then we're very, you know, often in the place of sort of offering up to God our list of the things we need for our kingdom to be established. I remember years ago, 
this lady, Rosemary Miller, hearing her say something, just a simple little thing, but it really has stuck with me forever. She said, do you realize that whenever you pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, what you actually are praying is, Lord, dismantle my kingdom. Because the chief obstacle for God's kingdom coming is you trying to establish your own kingdom. I was like, oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> Not sure I want to keep praying that. You really want God's kingdom to come, even if it means demolishing your kingdom. Well, you know, the good news is, and it really is good news, though a little hard to swallow, is that God is not waiting for your permission to establish his kingdom. And he will establish his kingdom. He's committed to it. He wants you to work with him in it, but he's going to establish his kingdom. How great would it be if your goal was his goal? And that's what this commandment is really all about. About longing for what God longs for. Coveting is about worship. It's about worship. It's about setting our heart's affections on things and saying we need these things. But again, what the things that we covet, whatever the things are, are really a means to an end. The thing that we really lust after is a life without the effects of the fall. We think that if we get this or that or this other thing, that we can somehow rise above the frustration, the boredom, the pain of life after the fall. It's why coveting is so very powerful. But it's why coveting is always a flight from reality. Coveting is always a flight from reality. Well, how does it affect, uh, well, one, one more point. Coveting is the eternal sin that never stays internal. The Bible has lots to say about the way coveting is at the root of societal breakdown, community breakdown, and all kinds of sins. It's the internal sin, but it never stays internal for long. More on that later. How does it affect our community? This is what Justin made, made this point, and, and well, well made, Justin. Coveting or lust is always about stealing. Again, Allender has a great way of saying this. He says that destructive lust involves the heart of a thief whose passion is to be satisfied, not the heart of a lover whose desire is to give. In some ways, that, that, that quote doesn't have the impact it should because I think in so many ways, love has been defined in our society as taking and as getting and being satisfied rather than as giving. But rightly understood, I think his quote makes a lot of sense. It's the difference between being a thief who wants to take or being a lover who wants to give. Lust is not concerned about other people except as they can be used to make ourselves feel alive. What is often labeled codependency these days is really the lustful desire to possess the heart of another person to make yourself feel alive. And so you realize this is a pretty prevalent issue. Because, again, we're refusing the relationship with God and all that it entails, and therefore we kind of seek the life and the pleasure and the joy, the ups and the downs that should come from having a relationship with God. We don't want that. And so we often look for these God substitutes that are more controllable and safer. I, you know, this is an old movie. Probably none of you guys have seen it, but you should watch it over Christmas. Um, it's one of my absolute favorite movies. It's called Parenthood with Steve Martin. And it's one of those movies that makes you cry. It makes me cry, and it makes me laugh. And there's not a lot of movies that make me cry. So 
That's, I really enjoy it. But the whole movie is about Steve Martin, who's this really likable dad. And his son is named Kevin. Imagine that. Um, and the interesting thing is, I always thought my dad looked like Steve Martin, because he was completely gray by 30. You know, so, so here I'm watching this movie. It's like, oh, well, well, there's my dad. Now, there's a lot of, lot of, he's not similar to my dad in so many ways. But the, the interesting thing about this movie, and one of the things, the themes of this movie is Steve Martin is a guy who's really kind of trying to juggle all these different balls in his life, okay, and keep, keep it all together, and he's very stressed out, and he's a control freak whose life is falling apart. And the interesting thing is he's looking at his son, and his son has picked up on all the anxieties that his father feels, that his father thinks he's kept hidden from him. And, and you know, the kind of the continual question that comes to Steve Martin in this movie is, will you ride the roller coaster? Life is a roller coaster. Are you going to get on and ride it, or are you going to try and stay over here? And it, I, 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 so many times I've been in that place where I say, God has created this, this life, this sort of multitude of colors. It's really hard, and it's really great. But sometimes I would rather check out and live in this sort of muted shades of gray kind of existence, because at least it doesn't hurt as bad. But see, the reality is, you don't have much zeal for the kingdom of God if you've shut off all your desires and longings for anything. You can't really love people. You may not be hurt, but who wants to live that way? It's not what we were made for. It's not what we were made for. But that's really the issue here. And, and you see, here's, the, here's the, what happens is, if you choose to, 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 to not embrace sort of the ups and downs of life and relationship with God, and you sort of like, okay, I want to cover my bases. I've got God off in the corner here, but I'm really going to live for this stuff over here. Inevitably, you will have to be involved in something that will make you feel alive. Some addiction, some lust, some longing will take the place of God to make you feel alive. And then you'll be over here trying to get rid of it, trying to, to let go of this thing over here that you're using to feel alive, all the while not realizing that the real issue that's driving this is you're failing to embrace God and all that he is. In some ways it's counterintuitive, but it, it's again what this commandment is trying to get at. Where is your heart's affection? Many people get used and, and hurt and abused by lust and by coveting. It, is, it has huge impacts on our communities. People get used by others and thrown away when they no longer make the victim feel alive, the victimizer, sorry, feel alive. It happens, as in mar it happens in marriages. It happens to employees who work, give the, the, the best years of their life to companies and then get discarded. I remember some friends of mine a few years ago, it's it just fascinating, you know, when they finally took a, stood, a stand, they were in the Christian music industry, and they finally said, look, we're not going to tour, you know, like, you know, idiots anymore and sort of put our marriage in peril. Of course, they're trying to tell this to all these people who work for the record company whose marriages have fallen apart because they've sacrificed their whole lives on the idol of Christian music and success. And, and so what happens? They get dropped from the record company, and the very next person they sign sounds just like the people that they dropped, except they're 18 years old, and they'll work for nothing, and they'll do whatever the record company tells them. This is, what, this is the way the world works. People get used and abused. We use people all the time, right? 
here's what you need to understand. See, coveting doesn't just want something. It wants something of your neighbors. Now, why is that important? Because in, in his or her heart, in our hearts, when we covet something, what we're saying is, I need it, I deserve it, and I will have it, even if it means taking it from you, which is a huge breakdown in love for our neighbors. Coveting is never just an internal, personal sin. It always spills over into our communities. And it begins first by turning your neighbor into an abstraction, into being less than a person. All that matters about this person over here is that they possess this thing that I want. And so you, you demean them, you sort of knock them down to being merely a possessor of this thing in the abstract, and then you feel completely justified and okay about longing and desiring that thing. It de dehumanizes so that it can possess. So that you can focus on what you need or what you think you need rather than on how am I called to love this person and to work for their blessing. Embracing coveting means embracing the lie that there is nothing that is sacred and that you don't need to respect the way God has chosen to distribute his good gifts. And we're all guilty of that, aren't we? We don't respect the way God has chosen to distribute his good gifts. Eugene Peterson says it this way, to covet is to fantasize a life other than that which is given to me. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not legitimate place for longing for things to be different than they are. But if it's not the kingdom of God that you long for first, you will never get this straight. Again, coveting does not mean killing your desires, but coveting does mean killing the desire to think that you would be better at distributing the world's gifts than God. Again, it doesn't mean that sin hasn't entered into this and that part of our longing for the kingdom of God is to bring more justice to the situations. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that coveting is, is, is really a refusal to rejoice with those who rejoice and saying, how dare they rejoice if I don't have that? And thus, it really sees all community or all potential community as competition. So it has huge, this has huge implications for living community. It brings, you know, sort of this shallowness. It sort of eats away at community from the heart. But often it's not seen. Eugene Peterson, um, who's the guy who translated the message, has a, a little thing where he says that, that coveting are like termites that begin to infest a house, but you don't see them. And pretty soon the floors start to fall, fall apart. Because it's very hard. You're saying, okay, I really, I really love you and I really enjoy you and I really want your best, but secretly in your heart you don't. You long for, that other, for those other people to lose what they have so that you can have it. You don't rejoice with those who rejoice. You may give the appearance of that. And how, what community can thrive and flourish in that kind of setting? It starts internally, but it never stays there. Turn the page over. And termites are, termites are crazy. Have you ever seen, twice in my life I've had, I've, I've been um, privileged to see termites swarm out of, out of the walls. One time I was working in this recording studio, doing a, a string date of all things, and all of a sudden, 
thousands of termites started pouring out of the walls. You've never seen the violinist move so fast. <laughs> it's really crazy. You have no idea they're there. And all of a sudden, they just swarm. Another time, band practice, back when I was a rock god. And um, <laughs> we, we were playing, and we had this little rehearsal space down on Music Row. It's been torn down long ago now. And we're playing, and all of a sudden, just out of, all, out of one wall, just massive termites, probably as wide as from like Alyssa all the way to here, just completely covering the wall. And they all just sort of went across the floor and out the door on the other side of the room. It was crazy. <laughs> and you just wonder, you know, in how many seemingly solid, healthy communities there is this termite infestation that's going on. And certainly egged on and fed by the media and by the consumer culture that really sort of makes a business out of making you covet and promising you that your life would be better if only you had X. And of course the way, you know, the way it gets you know, sold to us now is always about experiences because they know that we're a, a generation that just loves and longs for experiences. And so I use the, you know, the example of the MasterCard ads. You know? How much does it cost you know, to get tickets to the baseball game, blah, 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 and how much does it cost this? You know, but, but for that experience of being air with your son, right? And who doesn't long for that kind of experience? You know, you've got to spend a lot of money. And, and generally, you know, any real, true, heartfelt experience is going to be spontaneous. You can't save for it, so you're going to need a MasterCard, you know? <laughs> and, and the idea there is there is nothing, there is nothing that's not worth sacrificing so that you can have an experience. And, and it's, it's one of the great lies that, that you know, it's your chief, the chief end of man. If we were to write a catechism today, the chief end of man would be to get as many experiences as you could possibly squeeze into your little short life. <laughs> no matter what it costs, both in terms of real community, because, of course, that kind of pursuit always, always breaks down real community because it breaks down trust. Because you're, you're, you're only committed to relationships and to people and to community as long as it helps you get to your real goal, which is to have experiences. And when you're not having such great experiences anymore, well, then you move on. Should not be that way. <laughs> well, how does God bring healing? The first way is this. By forgiving us of our sin that is so much worse than we think. You begin to talk about coveting, you begin to think about coveting and lust in your own heart, and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm guilty. And it's worse than I've said tonight. It really is. Because the fact is, in your heart of hearts, you would rather kill God than live without the things you need. That's what put Jesus on the cross, you know. People that refuse to have their kingdom dismantled. Resting in Jesus' forgiveness is the beginning of finding freedom because it's where you come to sanity and realize, oh, I thought I had a better kingdom vision than God and a better plan for how to bring it about. And you have to get to a point of confessing that to God before you're going to finally begin to be free of coveting. You have to say, God, forgive me for thinking I had a better kingdom vision than you and a better plan for how to implement it. And help me, help me now, to long for your kingdom. By calling, second way God brings healing is by calling us to examine our heart longings. This issue of longings is so important. What are you really longing for? A couple of my examples. <laughs> Why do I really eat 
myself sick on Thanksgiving, or I would if I could. Why? What do I really want? Am I trying to feel alive by just that, that momentary fleeting enjoyment? Why do I eat more than I need? Why do I shop for stuff that I don't need all the time? My wife's shaking her head. Yeah, why do we do that? By calling us to embrace his kingdom and the ache for it to come that he himself bears. Now this may seem strange. God brings healing by bringing you more in touch with ache. But it's real. It's true. The question, the, the question you need to ask yourself, are you groaning for the future kingdom or are you just groaning in the present pain? It's one of the most important questions you'll ever wrestle with. And not that it's all of one or the other. But if you're growing as a Christian, you should be progressively groaning more for the future kingdom to come than for your own present pain. Again, you know I'm not saying don't, don't worry or think about your pain, but I'm saying are you growing in your ache for the kingdom to come? And I will tell you, it'll look differently to different people because I really believe God has gifted each of you in different ways to be a part of his kingdom coming. And he's put you in different situations where you see different ways that the kingdom needs to come. You know people, you're in relationships that I'm not in, where you see the kingdom of God needs to come here. Are you longing for it? Are you aching for it? Are you praying for it? Or are you trying to cut those kind of people out of your life? You're in situations, maybe at work, or maybe in school, or maybe as you read the news, or surf the internet, or whatever, where you see the kingdom needs to come here. And I'll tell you what, if we're not in touch with longings, it's, it's really hard to pray for very long at all. I remember years ago, Jack Miller, Rosemary, I mentioned earlier, his, her husband, talked about how for mo- most Christians, our prayers are so boring, even the angels are falling asleep. Because we're not praying kingdom prayers. And he said, you know, what really God has put you into places where right in front of you are places where the kingdom of God has to come. And we're praying for that. You ever see that movie, The Thin Red Line? Anybody see that movie? It's a little older now. It's an intense movie, war, kind of war movie. And the part that I really kind of drew from it that I found so powerful was how difficult it is to call down artillery fire. You've, you know, at least in, in those days, you had to get really close to the action. You had to be close enough to eyeball the target to call in an artillery strike. And I think that's a, a, a wonderful picture for our role in the kingdom. God has put you close to the action. And prayer is calling down the artillery fire and saying, Lord, come now. As the early church cried, Maranatha. Come, Lord. Come. By teaching us, the, the fourth way that God brings healing is by teaching us to embrace everything as a gift and to process everything through repentance. You see, we deserve death and hell, but we don't get that. We get life and we get gifts that God lavishes upon us. And really, it's so vital that we learn how to say thank you. Thank you. It really is the antidote to coveting. Coveting feeds on the feeling that God is being stingy to us. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. Who can look at the cross and believe that God is stingy in his love? And that's the final point. 
the, the real heart of the healing that comes from coveting is to be able to look at the cross of Christ and see there God's commitment to love and give you good gifts. The Bible links those things. You know, in Ephesians, Paul says that Christ descended. That means he came down here to earth, died on a cross, and then he ascended so that he could give good gifts to us. That Jesus died and was resurrected, and he gives us good gifts. All kinds of good gifts. God is not stingy in his love. But see, we often think that we know better than God what we need. We treat him not as the divine physician, but as the divine pharmacist. We want to write our own script, and we want to give it to him and say, fill this, please. Sometimes we don't have the courage to ask it, and so we just dream about it. But I don't think dreaming is too very far away from prayer, do you? I don't think it's too very far away from the kingdom. Focusing our gaze on the Lord's beauty revealed in the cross is vital. Because that's where reality comes crashing back in. Understand, the gaze of faith, when we sing these hymns, we're not just saying, close your eyes and think about nothing and just try to picture Jesus' beautiful face. We're saying, think on the truths revealed in the Word and in the sacraments. You feed, you gaze upon God and his beauty means to gaze upon his character, who he is, and what he's done. And so Christian meditation or Christian gazing, the eye of faith is always filled with content. It's not an emptying of the mind. It's a filling of the mind and then going beyond that to tasting the goodness of it. So that you read the scripture, every text in the Bible is a way to gaze upon Jesus and his beauty. When you read in the scripture about the punishment that God will deliver upon those who have trampled on his name and his glory, you are seeing what Jesus suffered for us. When you find God saying, this is what I want you to look at. This, sorry, this is what I want you to look like. Live this way. Rather than just beating yourself up and saying, I don't do that, oh no. Look at that and say, this is who Jesus is. He lived this way from the heart. What a beautiful life that is. I want that. Lord, make me that. Right? Every text in the Bible is a way to gaze upon Jesus and his beauty. The cross is the most beautiful picture, but it's also the ugliest picture. And that helps us remember, it helps us remember that God's idea of beauty is often very different than ours. And that growing as a Christian means even having your idea of beauty being transformed and molded. And of course, the ladies in this room, I don't have to tell you that because you recognize very well, I think, how oppressive false ideas of beauty are. Guys, it's true for you as well. And so we, we come to the, to, the, to, the, to the Bible and we say, Jesus, help redefine for us what beautiful is. Beautiful is so much more than just skin deep, of course, right? It's one who would live and die in the place of traitors. As we say, sing in that hymn sometimes, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. That's beautiful, but it's also mind-blowing. Faith grows by gazing on the character of God and the promises he's made, and they're all yay and amen, Paul tells us, in Jesus. 
So let's sing a hymn to close out our semester. Who is this? We're going to sing who is this. And, uh, you know, the reason I love this hymn, whenever the, the, the hymn writers love to ask questions. And questions, questions sort of invite us to say, be astounded. Rather than just saying, Jesus is like this, the question, who is this, encourages us to ponder. And to use even these words as just the tip of the iceberg. Who is this? He's the Lord of life who suffered death. He's the helpless babe who is the Lord of all creation. Get your mind and your heart around that. Let's, let's stand and sing this together.